everybody across the Jewish spectrum fundamentally agrees that culture is too powerful for us and that we have nothing to give to it. I think this is a fundamental failure of nerve and a, and a lack of courage on the part of the Jewish people who are the Amsagulo. Our responsibility is actually to bring our values out into the wider world and transform it for the better. And by abdicating the cultural sphere, especially the pop cultural sphere, which reaches so many hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, by abdicating any contribution or control, any contribution to or control over that cultural sphere, we're completely abandoning our responsibility to transform the world for the better. And so I think that in the coming generation, the real opportunity, especially as the barriers to entry into media and pop culture, are dramatically lowered because of the advance of technology and the disruption of the media industry, we have unparalleled, unprecedented in all of Jewish history opportunities to not only complain about culture, but contribute to culture, not only to react against culture, but to build culture, to actually be a part of the answer as opposed to trying to solve the problem. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCopyHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I posed a question last week on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. This is what I wrote there. When the founders of Torah Umada spoke about integrating Judaism and culture, they were thinking about Milton and Shakespeare, Bach and Beethoven. Sitcoms, action movies, and hip-hop are most likely far from what they had in mind. Do you think that modern pop culture can be elevated? Can it serve as a source of spirituality, or at least as a spur to think about important issues? Or is it just a way to relax at best, and if people can avoid it altogether, they should? What do you think? These are just some of the questions I discussed with Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, the co-founder of the Joshua Network, and the creator and host of its flagship podcast, Good Faith Effort. Rabbi Lamb feels very strongly about the importance of engaging with popular culture, not merely for relaxation, but also for spiritual exaltation. He is even more adamant that we, religious Jews, should be contributing to culture, being producers rather than just consumers, givers, that is, rather than merely takers. He believes that the time has come for Judaism to influence the wider non-Jewish world through pop culture, and that the world is now ready to hear Jewish voices. Being part of the counterculture now, he explains, is to accept tradition rather than to reject it. There's much more to discuss about the benefits and dangers of pop culture than what we talked about in this episode. One simple example that occurred to me just yesterday is that while certain comedies can be used to understand the human condition and learn about what drives people, those same sitcoms also often emphasize, in subtle ways, that the height of wit is to put other people down. Do we even realize the many ways that we are influenced by the negatives as well as the positives in pop culture? I ask this as someone who is a big fan of The Office, Parks and Recreation, but the fact that I openly engage with pop culture doesn't mean that I'm 100% convinced that it's always such a good idea. I think it's clear that this conversation with Rabbi Lamb is just the opening round of a much longer discussion. Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb is one of the youngest leaders of a major Jewish organization in the United States serving as chief executive of B'nai Tzion. Rabbi Lamb is a Princeton-trained historian of religion whose writings on faith and the public square have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Tablet, the Jerusalem Post, and the Jewish Standard. Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. My pleasure. 
We're going to talk a little bit about pop culture and Judaism, which is a fraught subject. Let's start off with Torah Umada, the idea of merging or perhaps integrating Torah and the secular world in general. And perhaps in its ideal form, as envisioned by certain of its founders, it might be the combination of Rav Soloveitchik and Shakespeare, or maybe Einstein or Rabbi Kiva Eger. I don't think that they would consider Rav Soloveitchik and Taylor Swift the ideal form of Torah Omada or the ideal form of merging Torah and pop culture. What's your feeling about it? Let's open with that open-ended question. Is there a place for pop culture for people who believe there is value in culture in general? I remember when I was a student at Yeshiva University, I was the interviews editor for a, at the time, newly launched publication, student publication called Kolam Avaser. It was the brainchild of uh, Zev Elef, who was the legendary editor of Commentator at the time. And my job was to interview Rashi Yeshiva, which was one of the great privileges of my life. I got to spend time with Rav Schechter, Rabbi Rosenzweig, Rabbi Bleich. I mean, it was unbelievable. At the time, uh, my grandfather, uh, Maurice Zakani, Rabbi Norman Lamb, Zechot Tzadok Levracha, was, was uh, the chancellor at the time. And and the Rashi Yeshiva, and so you know, I think there was just an expectation on the part of my uh, my erstwhile bosses that at some point I would interview him. <laughs> so I was hoping to save him for the uh, the issue that we were going to do on Judaism and pop culture. And I remember asking my grandfather, you know, Zaida, we have a, a you know an issue coming out, you know, you agreed to be interviewed. Do you mind if I interview you for the upcoming issue? And he said, what's the topic? So I said, what is the worth of pop culture from a Jewish perspective? And he said, oh, it's very easy. There isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Short interview. (laughs) Yeah. So we killed, we killed that interview. I ended up interviewing Rabbi Donnie Rapp, uh, who was fantastic. So that was a really good, that was a really good issue. I suppose not that I have any grounds or standing to argue uh, with, uh, or, or it's, it's <laughs> may even be us or to argue with my teacher in that respect. This was one of the cases where I, I think, I think if I had had some, some extra time with my grandfather and we really could have, could have sat down. Um, I think I, I think I could have convinced him, or at least I hope I, 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 I like to think that I could have convinced him. Okay. How would you have convinced him? What would you have told him about the value of pop culture? So I think the it's important to remember that a lot of what we a lot of what we think of as pop culture as opposed to like high culture these are just like very artificial distinctions that that don't really reflect an appreciation of the art forms themselves and they're kind of like a holdover from you know like old school european or ottoman or muslim world aristocracy where you know like there's certain things that are marked out as sort of appropriate for elite consumption they have like the you know the aristocratic ou as it were and mm-hmm. there are other things that aren't because the peasants and the masses engage engage right. in them and i think you know if you're just looking at at uh, purely on the grounds of artistry which obviously is subjective like you're looking purely on the grounds of artistry it's hard to argue that you know let's say some of the most popular contemporary hip-hop for example isn't displaying an astounding degree of of artistry of intertextuality so as a rebbe of mine when i was younger once said if you've watched the godfather and it hasn't affected your neshama it's because you don't have one (laughs) um so it just seems to me like i'd rather rather than kind of doing these distinctions between high culture and, and low culture or or you know esoteric culture and pop culture it seems to me best just to assess 
you know, art on its own terms. So I think where we've landed kind of as a culture is that because of the commercial world that we live in and the way capitalism has developed. So it just happens to be that culture is able to find larger audiences than it ever has. Uh, and it's able to become more diverse than it ever has. And so we're in a world where we actually, maybe for the first time in history, probably not, but it, you know, it's one of the unique moments in history where we actually don't have to choose between things that are that are widely appealing and things that are that are excellent. Doesn't mean that all pop culture is good, but we are living in a pretty unique and amazing age for really excellent popular culture. And I think very often what happens, pop culture begins being produced for the masses with perhaps a low artistic bar being crossed. But then as more people get involved in it, more artistic people get involved in it, that category of culture that was designed for teenagers, for example, it suddenly becomes much more interesting. A good example of that is rock and roll, which in the late 1950s was just teenager music, something with four chords and a beat that they could dance to. But then important bands started getting involved who actually had some serious artistic talent, creative talent, who suddenly raised the bar and changed rock and roll into rock, which is something quite different and has a high artistic merit or has some real artistic merit. At least there are those who would argue that. I'm among them. Like, like it's, it seems to me just like pretty straightforward that, that <laughs> if you're not willing to acknowledge that John Lennon and Paul McCartney are the, are the, represent the greatest songwriting team of all time, or at least like the top three. You're just not a serious person. Of course, we can acknowledge that that movement I just referenced from a low artistic bar to a much higher artistic bar also sometimes moves in the opposite direction, where you have high art that becomes inundated with money, with many, many people who have less artistic talent, and something which was a very serious form of art becomes a base form of pop culture. But let's get back to the first kind. Let's talk about what you just mentioned, Lennon and McCartney. High art as pop culture. Fine. Granted, that's true. That raises the question, though. Okay, let's assume that pop culture, like all culture, has value. Now tell me, from a Torah perspective, in your opinion, what is that value? Why should I care? Fine, it's good stuff. But why do I need it? So I think there are two ways to approach the question, and they represent kind of the two stages of... of what you might call Torah Umada or just the two stages of any Jewish approach to the world, I think. Uh, and that is what can we take from culture? The first one is what can we take from culture to augment or to enrich and enliven or, or at least give like a broader playing field for our Avodah Hashem, for our worship of God, which is to say, when we ask that kind of question, we're really asking a question about ourselves. Right? How do we make our own lives richer and better? Or how do we give our worship of God and our Torah values a larger, you know, a larger sort of palette to paint with? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's fundamentally a question of taking, which is okay. And it's sort of like the what first What do you mean it's a question of taking? What do you mean? Meaning we're not actually giving anything to the world when we do that, um, or to the rest of the world when we do that. We're 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 hoping that it will make Hashem happier. Uh, and that's obviously paramount for us, but we're not giving anything back when we're doing that. We're just taking from the rest of the world. And that's important, right? That's a part of the world is there for us to enjoy. And so, you know, or for us to, you know, to, to, to elevate. And so that's kind of like one question. So if you approach things that way, so then the question really does have to become kind of one of sorting, Right. You have to, you know, Rev Malamed, who's the author of the Panine Halacha series in his, uh, you know, the Rosh Hashiva of Har Bracha, 
in his introduction to the Malach of Borer, just has a wonderful sort of mini essay about how acts of Borer of selecting, you know, good from bad and bad from good is a fundamental, you know, element of the spiritually developed personality. And I think when it comes to culture, it's no less true, which is to say that, you know, there's a lot in culture that's 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 good and a lot in culture that's terrible. And it's our responsibility to take the Ocha Mitocha Psolas. And, you know, pe- some people are more adept at that. Some people are are... I think more tempted by the bad things or less able to discern the good things. And so it's kind of like a fraught, you know, a fraught thing, but I, and I think it requires actually a lot of, a lot of work and spiritual development. So like, in other words, you can go an entire day, you know, just binge watch the office on, on Peacock now. Right. Or you could, you know, binge watch some other show or you could just listen to an entire no, the office. album. The what? answer was the office. You're supposed to binge watch the office. Right, right, right. So I think, I think, I think Minig Yisrael is to, is to, is to binge watch the office and then do Parks and Rec afterwards. And then I think, and then I think you go 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt. But, <laughs> uh, but in any event, they're, they're different than hugging. So the, you know, but there, Elu again, exa- right, exactly. So, but again, there, it's a question of, of being able to discern good things. So you, I can see somebody watching an entire, you know, entire season of The Office completely unredemptively in a way that represents Bittelsmann, Bittel Torah, and in a way that, that you've just kind of like wasted your time. And if you're going to argue, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just for rest and relaxation. I needed to recharge my spiritual battery. So, and how many people are actually watching The Office in such a proportion that they can argue that yes, actually this is the tuffel and my and my engagement with Avodah Hashem is the Iker. Ah, it's probably it's it's a hard case to make. Um, so it actually takes real training, cultivation, like the the analogy to athletics, which which my teacher at Yeshiva University, Rabbi Shalom Carmi, has made often. The comparison to athletics is actually good. In other words, it takes real practice, discipline to be a discerning consumer of culture and pop culture is much harder than i suppose than higher culture now the second half i think that the second half of torah umada or any jewish approach to the world is a question not of what can we take from the world but much more importantly if we're act- if we actually believe the things that we say about the torah it's the blueprint for the world it's it's the most it's the profound source of revealed divine wisdom that is ever that humanity has ever encountered then certainly our most ambitious priority our highest priority should not be to take from everybody else to enrich ourselves but it should actually be to give from ourselves to the wider world around us and so i think you know we've kind of fallen into a weird trap in the wider Jewish world, and this is something that I think unites Orthodox Jews, you know, quote unquote, ultra Orthodox, I hate that term, ultra Orthodox, that unites conservative Jews, Reform Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, completely unaffiliated Jews. Everybody fundamentally looks at culture and sees something that operates upon us and that we do not operate upon. Which is to say, either culture is this incredibly powerful thing that we cannot affect, and therefore we have to kind of accommodate it or make our peace with it or maybe assimilate into it um, or at least we have to make concessions to it sort of the orthodox denominations kind of took the view that well culture is something so they agree we agree culture is something extremely powerful more powerful than us by far and we either have to you know engage with it delicately to take the good things from it and leave the bad or we have to hide from it but everybody across the Jewish spectrum fundamentally agrees that culture is too powerful for us and that we have nothing to give to it. I think this is a fundamental failure of nerve and a, and a lack of courage on the part of the Jewish people who are the Amsagulo. Our responsibility is actually to bring our values out 
into the wider world and transform it for the better. And by abdicating the cultural sphere, especially the pop cultural sphere, which reaches so many hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, by abdicating any contribution or control, any contribution to or control over that cultural sphere, we're completely abandoning our responsibility to transform the world for the better. And so I think that in the coming generation, the real opportunity, especially as the barriers to entry into media and pop culture are dramatically lowered because of the advance of technology and the disruption of the media industry, we have unparalleled, unprecedented in all of Jewish history opportunities to not only complain about culture, but contribute to culture, not only to react against culture, but to build culture, to actually be a part of the answer as opposed to trying to solve the problem. There's a lot to unpack there, Ari, so I want to take this <laughs> step by step. Let's just deal with that last point you're mentioning now in terms of our contribution to the wider cultural sphere. Are you suggesting that we should be out there producing TV shows, out there producing albums, out there creating new forms of pop culture? I mean pop culture deliberately. I'm talking about culture that's imbibed by hundreds of millions of people. Let's forget the cultural designation pop culture for a moment. Do you think that that's what we should be doing? Because I understand what you mean. And in fact, what you're saying is very inspiring. The other side of it is that that world often espouses values that certainly are antithetical to Torah. And even though a person who's idealistic says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to create a certain show or a movie or a whatever that's going to show the world a certain idea that's prevalent in Torah sources, or I'm going to try to get a certain concept across or a certain emotional value across. But the problem is that 99% of the people out there have values are completely different. It's going to be very difficult to actually get in there and be able to do that. I think it's more likely, I'm playing devil's advocate here, it's more likely you'll be affected by their values than you'll be able to influence them. What do you think about that? So I think the the problems that we're confronting, or not problems, that's the wrong word. I think the we can kind of break down that response into a couple of questions. There's questions of, of our own self-confidence. There's questions of who's our audience. There's questions of who are our allies. Um... So I think just it's like straightforwardly the case that that the way that we often talk about culture and I I often kind of said the same things as as you playing devil's advocate just did a second ago. I think it's just like a fundamentally um, diasporic attitude, like it's a Galuti way of thinking, which is to say, like, of course, we're going to lose right in any clash between our values and the values of sort of the the culture that began in the 60s, right? In the fight between something 3,000 years old and something like five minutes years old, historically speaking. Well, of course we're going to lose. Of course, right? And again, you know, you could... I think that argument was much more convincing, like, in, <laughs> in like, I don't know, 13th century Spain or 14th century Spain or, or, or in France, or where we literally were, were facing a monopoly and the use of force by anti-Semites. Um... You know, now we're not facing any kind of like threats of violence if we speak our minds. We're just facing other creative and imaginative people. So, you know, John Lennon was kind of the Imagineer par excellence. And the question that we have to ask is, do we have any ideas that are better, more appealing and more likely to win the day than imagine no religion? 
I don't know. That's a very, it's a facile idea. So I think what we have is actually much more powerful and we have to start acting like it. We have to actually believe. And like when we talk about how wonderful our values are, how great they are, how beautiful they are, we actually have to, either we believe what we're saying or we're just fooling ourselves so that we can avoid responsibility for these things. So I think the question then becomes, okay, let's assume that we have the confidence of our convictions. We know that what we have is good and right and what society needs. And by the way, parenthetically, look at the way pop culture is trending now. Um, I'll just give you one example of how culture is already trending towards what we have to offer. And it's just our, it's just the question of our willingness to seize the moment. Contrast two of the most famous uh, Disney movies, the most fa- the most famous recent Disney movie and the most famous kind of ancient Disney movie. Okay. Um, Little Mermaid and Moana. I just talked about this on on my podcast, Good Faith Effort, but but it's it's this is like my hottest Disney take. Okay. Both of them are sort of in that classic Disney mold of you know young woman um, has this domineering father. And she has to break free from her parents and throw off the yoke of of the patriarchy and kind of seize her own destiny. Um, now, of course, in in the Little Mermaid, you know the the female character like literally doesn't have a voice, right? So it's like a weird metaphor for the time. But <laughs> I mean, the Little Mermaid is actually about intermarriage. But that's that's a right, point. right. It might be another right, <laughs> but. You know, so superficially they're the same, and you know it's kind of like the standard Disney plot. But the differences in their journeys of discovery, Ariel and Moana, really is like Katzela Katzela make all the difference in the world. The Little Mermaid is about um, is about a woman who so thoroughly and completely is it about a young person who so thoroughly and completely rejects the past and rejects tradition that she literally becomes a new species by the end of the movie everything about her past is dead the best that her parents can do is kind of watch from the water inevitably and ineluctably separate from Mm -hmm. their daughter for the rest of time reluctantly giving their blessing at the very end reluctantly Exactly. It's exactly. It would. It's sort of like Fiddler on the Roof. If Tevya told his last daughter, like, ah, all right, I guess. I guess go, okay. Go, right. Go off. Right. Go off and leave. Yeah. Moana. So here's the plot of Moana. Moana also has parents that she's reacting against and rebelling against, and that's youth culture since the beginning of time. But the way that Moana rejects her parents is that the key moment in that story is actually when she sits down with her grandmother. And her grandmother reveals to her that actually there are these ancient and wonderful and virtuous traditions that your parents themselves abandoned and that they've hidden from you. They've stolen your cultural patrimony from you. And it's only by discovering those ancient traditions. It's only by actually going back to the past and rediscovering the vitality of your ancestors that you'll be able to create a better future. You're not going to travel back in time, but you're going to use that tradition to build a better and brighter and more more virtuous and bountiful future. And that's the story of Moana. Moana is literally the story of the rediscovery and the revitalization of tradition. If that's not, yeah, if that's not a metaphor for like the the revitalization of of the state of Israel and religious Zionism, I don't know what is. And so we're entering a moment in now. Why are we entering this moment in culture? Because we've just gone through a period where the way to be iconoclastic, which is what young people always want to do. 
you know, like growing up, the best way to ensure that I was going to listen to like Nirvana and Metallica was my parents telling me that that's bad music, right? So every youth culture is going to rebel. In kind of like the 60s and even in the 90s, the way that iconoclasm looked was tradition is bad and all these religious institutions, they don't seem to be any morally superior to other institutions, blah, 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 blah. And so let's throw off tradition, let's be skeptics, and let's and let's just kind of be enlightened and empowered individuals who don't need anybody else. We're sort of in this Rousseauian state of nature. That was the way to rebel. Hmm. Now, the rebels are actually religious. Sort of the young, cool, hip people are actually traditional, religious. They're they're not looking to go back to like old school houses of worship. But yeah, the Gallup, you know, Gallup has shown that. But Pew at the very same time as Gallup has shown that traditional church attendance is falling, is it has fallen below 50% for the first time in American history. Pew is showing that compared to 10 years ago, young people are much more spiritually hungry than they than they have ever been in generations. So we're at a moment now where the cool kids' table is traditional, is religious, is spiritual. And just to give you an example, like a contemporary example, I go back to hip hop from before, compare the the most popular music in the world, uh, or certainly in the American sphere, but globally as well. Compare the most popular hip hop from like when I was growing up, like 90s, 2000s, to today's contemporary. So, you know, out of Compton, back in the day, you had NWA, you had Easy, you know, you had Easy E, you had Ice Cube, and you know you had you had folks like that what they're doing is documenting they're documentarians right so like they're documenting the the horrible conditions that people are suffering you know the so the music has a lot of violence it has a lot of misogyny has a lot of a lot of um anger which you know again it's all in a documentary style so i think it's misunderstood but fundamentally it's like there's not an there's not an an aspiration for redemption in Mm -hmm. that music um, and it's fundamentally about sort of like individual stories. If you contrast that with the music that's coming out of Compton today, which is still the most popular hip hop music, so Kendrick Lamar, Vince Staples, out of Chicago, Kanye West, Chance the Rapper, like these are all deeply religious individuals who are talking about the Bible in their music. And they're t- and <laughs> Kendrick Lamar's breakout album literally opens with, I kid you not, an, a conversion story, <laughs> where like he and his he and his friends encounter an old woman on the street who I think is played by Maya Angelou, and she like converts them so we're dealing with an era where you know carrie underwood justin bieber just released essentially gospel albums like we're dealing with a new generation that is looking for something and if we don't see this as an opportunity to rise to the occasion we're failing we're fundamentally failing i fundamentally agree with the idea that now younger generations are hungering for spirituality in a way which was not true for their parents there is a desire for something deeper but at the same time again playing somewhat devil's advocate, although I can't say I disagree with this entirely. Part of that spirituality is a spirituality absent specific doctrine, and more specifically for our purposes, and specifically relating to Torah Judaism, I think the hunger for spirituality absent command. In other words, the concept of you have certain things that you have to do and certain behaviors in the ritual or perhaps in the sexual realm which are not acceptable, which is a fundamental idea of Torah Judaism, in fact, one of its distinguishing characteristics, it's not simply a set of beliefs, if it's that at all. It's primarily a set of actions. That's at least its prime manifestation. The belief might emerge from that. When all of these various pop artists are dealing with, they're dealing with religion, the majority of them 
are not dealing with religion in the Torah sense. I don't know. I don't only mean they're not Torah Jews. I also mean that what they call religion, what you're describing as spirituality, is not necessarily what we would consider in any sense orthodoxy. Now, I'm not hung up on terms. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. But if we are interested in trying to convey a, a concept that relates to the way Torah understands the world, that there are specific things that are right and specific actions that are wrong, we are in a place now where some of those actions, which the Torah, for example, prohibits, pop culture will go in the exact opposite direction. So while, yes, there is a hankering and a hungering for spirituality, the specific spirituality associated with much of religious Judaism, I'm not sure it really is going in that direction per se. So again, it's it's a good point, but it's fundamentally approaching the question of culture from the perspective of taking rather than the perspective of giving. Sure, if the question is, you know, should we be replacing Mornavuchim or, or, I mean, no one teaches Mornavuchim, nicely. Should we be replacing like Ramban Torah or Rashi Torah with Justin Bieber or Vince Staples? No, obviously. Obviously, we shouldn't. And if the question is. That is not the easiest path to spirituality. Right. And if we're, and obviously, if we're saying, you know, like, should we, should we change the time-honored and eternal principles of Judaism to accommodate the the spiritual yearnings of Selena Gomez, like of, obviously not. But what we're asking now is a fundamentally different question. We're not asking what can we take from people. We're asking what can we give to people. How do we make what's going on in society and human affairs better? So, again, this is straight out of the Pshudil Shalmikra of Yeshayahu. I mean, we talk a lot about Kimitzion Tetzei Torah Darshem Yeshua. Kimitzion Tetzei, it always drives me nuts. They're like these Torah Mitzion Kolels, which is obviously playing on that verse where it's like people come from Israel and they go out into American communities and they teach Jews about how. It's like such a, it's so antithetical to the spirit of the verse because the Pasuk is not talking about teaching Jews Torah. The Pasuk is talking about teaching non-Jews values. So the, the Torah says, that in the end of days, the nations of the world are going to come to us and they're going to ask us to teach them. And they're going to ask us to better them. Now, What's fascinating is that Yeshayahu articulates that vision in the 8th century at kind of the, the height of Assyrian power, mm-hmm. right? Where the Jews are contending with this universalistic empire that really sees itself as challenging any other religion for sort of hegemony. And so Yeshayahu is doing something so revolutionary, or Hashem through Yeshayahu is doing something so revolutionary by teaching humanity at that point that actually not only do you not have to go to Ashur to learn about goodness and to and to bow before their God, but actually people are going to come to us and ask us. What then happens, you know, centuries, you know, centuries afterwards when Micha is the Navi, is that Micha kind of recapitulates that in, in Paragdal. Like if you read the Micha Paragdalid, What's fascinating is he basically quotes Yeshayahu's Navua. And then Hashem has him add a couple of sentences. And it's kind of the most famous sentences in, in American use of scripture, right? That each man will sit under his own vine and fig tree. But basically, the, the, it was George Washington's fa- favorite, uh, favorite biblical verse. But what Micha does is he says, look, when people come to us to learn from us, that doesn't mean that we're expecting them to become Jews. We're not a proselytizing religion. And 
more importantly, we're not a universalizing religion. We actually don't think that it's good for everybody to ha to have s sort of one set of 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 practices. I mean, because everyone has a different story, right? That's the the journey from the universal beginning of Sefer Bereshis, which is Genesis one through nine, to the particular rest of Bereshis, which is Genesis twelve and onwards, the story of Avram. We actually believe that at the end of the days, people are going to still have their own stories, their own histories, their own traditions, and there's going to be a basic recognition of certain of certain basic truths. By uh, you know, but that can encompass a wide array of other of other beliefs and traditions and stories and histories. And at the end of the day, that's what Micha's talking about. So I think when it comes to the question of giving to culture, I think it's a fundamental misapprehension of our mission to say, well. Culture is not perfectly Torani, and it's not perfectly Orthodox Jewish, because that's the kind of thing you worry about when you're taking from culture. But when you're giving to culture, when you're teaching, you don't have to worry that the Amim Rabim are not Jews. The whole point is that they're not Jews. The whole mm -hmm. point is that they're the Amim Rabim. The question is, how can we improve the wider culture? Because in doing that, we are bringing ourselves one step closer to that Acharita Yamim. And so I think the question we have to ask is, what is the cultural trajectory? And who are our allies, by the way? So this is kind of, you know, this brings me back to like one of my favorite moments in Tanakh, because I think it's such a metaphor for where we're going uh, and the opportunities we have now. So one of the remarkable things about the Beis HaMikdash, <laughs> every time we have either built it or tried to build it, it has always been with the explicit assistance of non-Jews. Uh, Even the Shlomo first base Amalek, of Mikdash, for sure. Shlomo Melech builds it with Hiram. The second base of Mikdash is built with the Persians, with Cyrus, with Dar with with Daryavesh. In the Roman era, we have historical and some archaeological evidence that the that uh, there was an attempt to rebuild the Beis Hamikdash in the fifth century, or the fourth or the fifth century, under Julian uh, Emperor Julian, with the assistance of the Romans. It failed, but but with the assistance of the Romans. So, what are we to make of this kind of partnership? The archetypal one for me is Shlomo. Because when Shlomo HaMelech attempts to build a Beis HaMikdash, so what he does is he reaches out to the most powerful monarchs throughout the ancient world. And he says to them, look, I'm building a building. If I have to, I'll build it myself. But if you partner with me, if you invest in this, then together we'll build a civilization that will stand the test of time. And I actually believe that it's in that moment that the modern world, that we, as we know it, is born. Interesting. It's a moment where Jews realized that just because, that on the one hand, yes, of course, we have to, we have, to have a society that is self-sufficient. We have to be able to survive on our own, not just physically, but intellectually, religiously, spiritually. We have to be spiritually coherent on our own without anybody else. But just because we have to have that, and any as any dignified people should, it doesn't mean that therefore we shouldn't have allies. In fact, the way that the way that dignified and powerful and self-confident peoples have always acted throughout history is that they've built allies. Because you know that if you're if you're confident in yourselves, then having allies can only amplify your values and amplify your work. Fundamentally, we have forgotten over the last two thousand years how to have friends. As a people, we've forgotten how to have friends because nobody has liked us and anybody who's ever reached out a hand seemingly in kindness has really been reaching out a hand to take something from us, right. whether it be plunder, whether it be usury, whether it be something else. So we've been kicked around for 2000 years, actually longer than that. We've been kicked around, you know, we've been we've been kicked around for like, you know, 2300 years or, you know, so 
we've forgotten what it means to actually be a big kid. But now we are. We have the state of Israel. We have a flourishing culture in Israel. Outside of Israel, we have ways of doing and building and being in community that are the envy of people uh, across the world. And all people, you know, all Jews need to do is actually speak to those people to hear it. You know, I remember actually when I was at Yeshiva University, we had a delegation of of folks from the U.S. Uh, chaplaincy come and visit us. Some of the highest ranking uh, military officials in the United States military uh, in the chaplaincy corps. They came to Yeshiva University not to recruit chaplains because we don't send very many people to the chaplaincy. We send some, but we don't send very mm-hmm. many people to the chaplaincy. They came for a very simple reason, as they put it. The way that we were trained is we teach theology to people who want to be theologians. We don't know how to make things relevant for people, you know, for, for your average These weren't necessarily Jewish chaplains, in other words. None of them were Jewish chaplains. Okay. None of them were Jewish chaplains. We know how to teach theologians. We don't know how to teach plumbers, accountants, techni- you know, software engineers. But here at this school, you guys, the vast majority of people that you're getting to spend hours a day studying ancient wisdom are not are future theologians. Be, none of them are going to be theologians. Even the ones who are going to be in the Rabbanus are not going to be theologians, <laughs> That's <also true>. right? <laughs> but right? the majority aren't so, going to be rabbis either. They're not going to be rabbis, right? Exactly, exactly. And to them, it was just remarkable. And the, and they, the question, the basic question was, like, how, do you, how do you even do this? You know, there are a lot of complexities to answering to the question, but one of the basic answers is we specialize in super thick community. We have everything is built around community, around wisdom, around around uh, studying and taking seriously the word of God and, and those amongst our parents and grandparents and great grandparents who have themselves engaged the word of God and wrestled with it. And so we're convening, as Rabbi Soloveitchik used to call it, the symposium of generations all the time. And so what we have is is essential and necessary. If you just look at the trajectory of pop culture, it's moving from an era of kind of individual self-empowerment and ultimately emptiness to a world of mutual empowerment and community and fulfillment. Is it doing it perfectly? No. Is it doing it ex- exactly the way that we would that we would design it if we could? No, but again, <laughs> Luli Mistafina, neither did Adam or Noah, right? Meaning there's a reason why we had to start with Avraham and build from there, right? So the question is, how do we actually take the values that we have and use it to usher the trajectory now in a better in a better direction? And we have to ask ourselves, who are the Hirams? Who are the Hirams out there who are our natural partners? It doesn't mean that they're the same as us and they believe everything that we do or they hold all of our values. Hiram didn't do those things for Shlomo. But who are the Hirams out there? As Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik has argued, is it traditional Catholics, perhaps? Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy with that view. Is it, you know, is it sort of young evangelical Christians who are very thoughtful and take us seriously? I absolutely think that's the case. Like Rob, Rob Nicholson and the Philos Project. Is it, you know, is it some of the titans, the new titans of Silicon Valley who take their faith and the role of faith and its partnership in the future of tech extremely seriously. Balaji Srinivasan, Trey Stevens, Catherine Boyle, absolutely. I mean, we have some incredible Hirams out there. And the question is, how do we seize the opportunity? So it sounds to me like you're a big fan of the dignity of difference uh, as coined by Rabbi Sachs. That's all. I, yeah, I, very, I very much enjoyed the book. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back with the rest of our discussion in just a moment. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and so on. 
please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, I hope five, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. We're adding new features to Patreon all the time, including, coming up very soon, AMA, Ask Me Anything. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day, or alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I want to move on to something related that you said earlier, because the majority of people who are listening, they're not going to go out and create pop culture. They're going to imbibe pop culture. So for most people, what you're saying is very, very inspiring, but not really relevant to their daily lives, I would guess. You might tell me otherwise. But for people who simply want to, as you put it earlier, elevate pop culture, I want to know what you mean by elevate pop culture. You talked about binge watching The Office followed by Parks and Rec. The question is, how do I elevate that? I would think that most people would say it's a good way to relax. Binge watching isn't perhaps relaxing. That's that's something else. But if one does relax, that's one thing. But how do you actually elevate something which is pop culture? What do you mean by that? So I think there are two questions here. One is um, how do you use culture to elevate yourself? That's one way to talk about elevating pop culture. And that gets back to the taking question, which is, again, I think important. It's the first half, right? It's not It's not unimportant. It's the first half. Uh, And the second question is, you know, if you're not going to be out there making TV shows, which I think we should be doing, and, you know, I'm working on an initiative that will do that, that, you know, we'll be uh, publicizing hopefully soon. If you're not making, you know, new video games, new TV shows, new movies, new, you know, new podcasts, new music yourself. So what can you do to give? Um, And I think that's a separate but equally important question. Okay, so take it one at a time. When it comes to taking pop culture, I think we have to be, I think we have to begin with some self-criticism, which is for those of us who are consuming pop culture, uh, the reality is that we're probably consuming too much of it. Uh, As valuable as I think it is, we're probably consuming too much of it. And I think we do ourselves no favors by pretending that we don't and by trying to just take whatever it is we're already doing and find a way to call it virtuous. So important point. Right. And the best traditions, I think, I think there's like sort of, there's a version of Torah Umada that does that. And it frustrated and angered my grandfather to no end, right? A way of, a way of people using an idea that's meant to drive you to greater spiritual heights and using it instead to justify your own mediocrity. Nothing angered my grandfather more than that. (laughs) To use Um, this as an excuse to allow yourself to be less than you should be. Exactly. And he wrote and spoke about this often, explicitly. I'm not, you know, this is an insider information. In the best traditions of Musser, I think the answer is probably for most of us, consume less and find ways to do that intentionally, right? Like it doesn't have to be, 
you know, cold turkey, but fine moments where, you know, you think, you know what, Adkan, let me take out a Gemara, or Adkan, let me take out a Chumash, or Adkan, let me take out, you know, Sharon Betfila, or, or Panina Hal, or whatever it is, right? Then the question becomes, okay, what am I looking for in culture? So That's the question I'm really interested in. Right. So I think, you know, the argument that Torah Umaditions, right, traditionally, you know, like the practitioners of whatever we call the practitioners of Torah. That's a good term. I like that. Right. Typically make for engaging with like high cultures that, well, it's it's an insight into the human experience. It's a way for us to learn about about who humans really are, what makes them tick. And it's a way for us to engage with. I think the most important of the most important creatures of the entire Bria, which I mean, what what could possibly be more important than that? Um, if that's true of Shakespeare, which today, you know, very few people consume, if you know, albeit important people, but if very few people consume, then that certainly must be true of music or 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 televisual art um, that hundreds of millions of people consume. If you want to learn about people, then that's a good way to do it. I think in particular, this is true for types of like just to take music, for example, I am particularly attracted if if the if what we're trying to do is learn about the Bria and learn about humanity and actually understand these incredibly complex creatures that Akadosh Baruch Hu created and how we're supposed to engage with them. The best way to do it is to engage forms of art that tell stories about people. So, you know, there are forms of music that are actually kind of like more given to to specific and particularistic storytelling, which as a Jewish person and a fan of Tanakh, I'm a big fan of, um, country music and hip hop are probably, you know, and and sort of and certain forms of like Heartland rock like Bob Seger, or Bruce Springsteen, mm-hmm. maybe even maybe even Bob Dylan. I'm very drawn to those types of music because if you want to learn about what makes people tick, you want to learn sto- you want to learn stories. That's the great insight that Jerusalem had over and against Athens, which is that the best way to knowledge is not through system, it's through story. It's another great insight of Rabbi Sachs, by the way. So I'm very drawn for that reason to Waylon Jennings, to Kendrick Lamar, to to Bob Dylan, to Bruce Springsteen, um, even to Billy Joel. I think you know I th- I know it's fashionable to like Elton John more than Billy Joel, but actually I think the reverse <laughs> is true. He just tells better stories. Then there's the question of okay, let's say you're getting beyond storytelling, right? So what can you what can you learn? I think the answer is you have to come into the music, or come into the experience of art, whether it's videos, like film, TV, whatever. I think you have to come in half with an open mind, right? Of being open to experiencing what people are trying to tell you, right? In other words, ultimately it's about being a Ben Torah, a good Ben Torah, and listening to people, mm-hmm. right? Lis- listening is a good quality. Right, so if you're watching The Office, I think the, I think what you want, the first thing you want to know is what like these people you're watching, you're watching a show about normal people who are stuck in an environment that would otherwise crush their spirits, and they're trying to find a way to discover and uncover ultimate meaning, some of the most important thing: love, loss, hope, despair. They're trying to investigate those things in a cubicle, and part of what we have to do is listen because in real life finding those people and hearing them and ultimately helping them requires listening i mean it's 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 a chesed it's an act of chesed okay so ari i want to ask you about that because you've hit on a very important point you discuss storytelling and I'm in agreement. I think this is a fabulous way of finding out more about the human condition that's common to all of us or about particular people. Here's my question, which has always sort of 
it's bothered me. And I say this as someone who enjoys pop culture. I'm not coming from as an outsider. I'm not coming from that world which would reject it entirely. I'm coming as someone who does watch The Office. The problem I see with pop culture and using it, having this almost intellectual engagement to listen to the stories they're telling, to try to discover and to uncover the meaning that they're trying to convey is this, which is that pop culture is not something which is pure literature. It's a largely emotional experience. You are enveloped by something which appeals directly to your emotion, to your heart, rather than to your mind. As a result, you're often being taught messages that you're not even aware of. And given, you, you mentioned, for example, I don't have to get back into some of the names you mentioned, but a lot of these people in their personal life don't necessarily embody values that you and I would say are Torah values. Let's just leave it at that. So while some may be very fine, upstanding people, some of them we know are generally not. Given that, these are people, when I listen to their music or watch their movie or try to understand what they're telling me, or even not understand it is even the scarier part, I'm now being taught something by somebody who has values that differ from mine, but unlike normal intellectual engagement with somebody, I don't have the opportunity, the realization that they're even teaching it to me. I'm now absorbing those values completely subconsciously. That's the fear that I have, that I'm learning about the human condition and I'm discovering more and more. But the values that I'm being taught may be values that actually are going to compete against my Torah values. But unlike a normal fair fight, I don't even realize I'm getting them. So I don't even know I have to fight them. So I think the it's a good question. The answer is twofold. Again, this is bracketing the question of like when you're giving to culture and contributing um, that question, I think, almost entirely falls away. Right. But, I'm talking but, about but, someone but, absorbing right. it. But when you're right, so I think there are two things. One is I think it's important to recognize that you know, in <laughs> this is the great debate between Plato and David Hume. Are humans or or, or sort of like Aristotle and David Hume? Are humans ultimately creatures of reason? who happen to have a couple of pesky emotions attached on the side that it's our job using reason to ignore or that's Aristotle or are humans creatures of emotions and passions and reason is something that we kind of have attached on the side that we can use to disguise the fact that <laughs> to cleverly disguise and duplicitously disguise the fact that we are ultimately creatures of passion and emotion. I think the best social science evidence and probably the best, you know, evidence from common sense suggests that Hume was correct and Aristotle was wrong. I think it's fair to say that most moral systems will utilize a Hume type approach rather than an Aristotelian one based on logic. And the same thing is true in the best possible way of Yiddishkeit. I mean, the Rav Zatzal used to lament this, right, that, you know, he's like... I, I, you know, I, I'll take, uh, I, don't, I don't remember exactly the way that he phrases it, but he writes about this in Halachic Man, about how all the most brilliant chakiras in the world couldn't compare with, with the, the pure spiritual joy of his mechanech when he's a young boy blowing the shofar, right? And that's really the message of Uvikash Tembi Sham, which the Rav says is the level after Halachic Man. Yeah. He talks about sitting on his bed as a little kid, listening to his father teach Rambam. And it wasn't the specific hakira, it wasn't the specific message that his father was able to convey. It was the experience of hearing Torah that affected him so. Yes. And so ultimately, I think what's made like the Frum community, for lack of whatever, for lack of a better term, but like what makes the what has made the Frum community so successful is that we've is that we've ultimately just rejected Aristotle and said what we're going to do first and foremost is we're going to create an experience, an emotional experience for people. Uh, because we're emotional creatures. And so we're not going around there kind of 
presenting arguments for God and engaging people with with Rukhaims, like what we're and, and like Tilson and Nasivis, what we're going around and doing is saying, here's the experience of a Shabbos with your family. Here is what it feels like to be in like the most adorable, dorky in the best way, Chumash play, right? Here's like, here's Camp Manavu. It's awesome, right? Like, you know, we're doing things like that. We're saying go to MetLife Stadium and celebrate completing Shas with, you know, 100,000 other people. So we're just creating experiences that draw people in. So ultimately, I think we would be sort of doing ourselves a disservice if the way that we set up the engagement of pop culture is, well, we have reason and they have passion. And ultimately, you know, passion is so powerful. And so we're going to, there are going to be things that slip in through the back door of passion while we're busy manning the ramparts of reason. I think that's not necessarily an accurate way of describing our own strengths, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, we are waging a battle of emotion and passion. And I think ultimately what this requires, much as in the giving scenario, even the taking scenario requires the self-confidence of saying, like, actually, when you watch The Office, just to use another example, I think when you watch The Office, you fall in love with these characters and, and they're so wonderfully portrayed and complex. But I think I think the takeaway of The Office is supposed to be that that ultimately you're a little sad for these characters. Like you're so happy that they find happiness, you know, in the end. The best tell, by the way, is if you watch the British version of The Office, which I know which is does like not an, have a happy ending. Right. It's, it's very a, it's sad. It's a characteristically British, very, very cynical take. American TV wouldn't work like that. Yeah, you're supposed to be sad for these people. It's a truism that American sitcoms all end such that we will know that when the show is no longer on the air, the characters will be okay. In fact, that's something which I don't even like so much about the ending of Parks and Rec, which otherwise is a good show. I didn't like the last season, and I especially didn't like the final episode where... Michael Schur, who is obviously a fantastic producer, nevertheless made sure that we know that everybody had really a very, very happy ending. And it was almost too much for me. British producers don't seem to be hung up on that. And The Office, American and British, is a great example of this dichotomy. Right. And I, now, listen, I happen to like the American version better. Like, I like that. No, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's been years, right? So, like, <laughs> I, I think it's OK at this point. I like that Michael and Holly ride off into the sunset. I like that Jim and Pam ride off into the sunset. I love that Dwight and Angela find each other in the end. But like, ultimately, you're. I think, you know, coming from the kind of community that we do, one takeaway, even purely at an emotional level, is, man, like, these people's lives would be so much happier if they had Shabbos. They just would be. Like, they would have time to connect, to plug back into family. They'd have time to reflect. They'd have time to process everything happening during the week. Like, I just think that's that's something, even at a subconscious level, I don't think anyone explicitly articulates that when they're watching The Office, nor should we expect people to. But I actually think we, we would be doing ourselves as a community a disservice to leave that behind. Mm -hmm. And... Then, number two, I think my recommendation, and I make this a practice, and I, I, you know, some people might find it annoying, but I think most people respond, at least in my experience, most people respond really positively to it, is don't be afraid to engage people at a high level about pop culture. Like, some of the best conversations I've ever had with strangers have been, you know, when I've met somebody for the first time. And it's like, oh, you know, did you listen to Coloring Book by chance? Like, oh, my God, I love Coloring Book. You listen to Life of Pablo from Kanye? I love Life of Pablo. Like, oh, you're a Beatles fan? I'm a Beatles fan. Like, oh, you watch Parks and Rec? I love Parks and Rec. You love 30 Rock? I love 30 Rock. Here's my hot take about 
the the way in which 30 Rock is important for a spiritual personality, right? Like I just kind of, my, my own approach is to kind of bring a bazooka to a knife fight and just go for like the high level conversation right at the start of a relationship. I have found in my personal experience, people respond well to that. Like some of my, some of the people that I'm, that I've become like really friendly with. In fact, some of my closest friends are people where we kind of both just decided to be vulnerable and go for it and not have superficial conversations and have real conversations about the things that we both love and like. Um, And so I would encourage people to, if there's one lesson to be taken away from the Orthodox experience, Orthodox Jewish experience, the from Jewish experience of culture, it's that culture is best experienced as a community. It's true of Yiddishkeit. It's true of, yeah, it's true of Torah and it's true of all culture. So if you want to make meaning out of, out of culture and you're conceiving of it as kind of like an individual endeavor, you've already kind of surrendered. The best, and I'd argue the only way to redeem culture in a personal, individual sense is to do it in a collective fashion. I think that's very interesting. We're almost out of time. I will say, by the way, with 30 Rock, someday I'm going to put this down because 30 Rock, I believe, is simply a recreation, probably consciously, of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, I love it. Which, in turn, I believe, is one of the three most important sitcoms of all time. I didn't say best, but most important, along with I Love Lucy and Seinfeld. But that's a discussion for another time. I I will say, by the way, my my grandfather, this is something that that we talked a lot about, uh, that my my parents and and aunts and uncles talked a lot about, the Shiva. He, He had two kind of pop culture loves. He wasn't a big fan of pop culture. He had two but one was Everybody Loves Raymond and the other one was MASH. <laughs> <laughs> I know the Rev so, also liked MASH apparently. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just one last question if you don't mind, Ari. We're talking about all these ideas that we can derive from pop culture, elevate it for ourselves, give to it, take from it. Now there's a very big difference from, for example, listening to a Bob Dylan song or listening to Wynton Marsalis play the trumpet. And listening to the Rolling Stones sing, Let's Spend the Night Together, which in turn is very different from watching a TV show like Game of Thrones, which includes frontal nudity. Now, engaging with pop culture involves certain things which actually involve active and real clear violations of halacha. What does one do about that? Obviously, the answer is, well, don't do that. But in general, when you're dealing with pop culture, it's very hard to filter some of that out. So it's a really good question. So I think, first of all, the when people tell me that there are I think the the lines here are actually quite a bit more ambiguous than people usually make them out to seem. So just to give an example, I think sometimes there's just a question of ignorance. So there is a there is a, a Rav once who wrote an article about listening to secular music. I don't remember who it was, but it was it was like published in one of the local Jewish papers where he he says, Well, you know, the, the pop, secular music, like it's it's technically mutter, but there's so many bad values in it. And the example that he gave, he said, for example, there's open advocacy and glorification of hard drug use. For example, there's a song by a guitarist named Eric Clapton called Cocaine. Anyone who's listened to Cocaine by Eric Clapton knows that it is a, (laughs) that it's a song about how cocaine destroys your life, right? Right. So I think part of the problem here is like, is that you can't, you can't be a dying on things you don't understand, number one. Um, It's sort of like when you hear Christians in the Middle Ages criticize the Jews for having a masechet entirely about eggs. How stupid could that possibly be? Right, right, right. They don't even know what they're talking about. So that's like a lahav deal, but that's sort of describing Eric Clapton and cocaine. Exactly, exactly. So I think there's some of this is a question of like when I hear like grandiloquent pronunciations from people like, oh, how terrible this is. I think sometimes it's like, have you watched this? Have you listened to this? Like I I suspect often that I assume often that people just don't know what they're talking about. 
but it is true that there definitely are areas where I think people, where I think there, there's sort of, there's some areas where I think they're just like objective Yisurim, but I think there are actually very, 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 very few of those. But I think there are some areas where they're objective Yisurim. Most of the time, though, we're talking about things that are technically mutter, but might be bad for you. And I think there it's a question of of drawing, people need to draw boundaries. Um, so on the one hand, what I would say, and then I'll qualify because I don't want it to be misinterpreted, I think this drawing boundaries is really an individualized pursuit. People need to draw their own boundaries. Now, I don't want people to hear that and say that, well, it's all relative. It doesn't matter. So don't draw any boundaries. I actually think every single person has a, has a, a moral obligation to draw some boundaries. And you used, you actually brought up one of my boundaries before. I actually made a decision about a decade ago, not to listen to the Rolling Stones. And I love the Rolling Stones. Uh, but I, at a certain point I made a decision that, and I think, you know when it was, I was listening to the radio and brown sugar came on and I'm like, you know what? This just isn't for me. <laughs> I think sympathy for the devil is like one of the great songs to engage, to engage of all time. Uh, and other people may draw this differently. I once, I once, uh, was speaking to, uh, to a Rav at a, at a very prominent kind of yeshiva, uh, where lots of modern Orthodox kids go who's very open about how, yes, I love the Rolling Stones, and I think that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I just made a decision for myself. I don't listen to the Rolling Stones anymore. And I think everybody has to draw some Gadarim, because if you don't draw Gadarim, then I think you are conceding too much to culture. In other words, my whole premise today in this conversation has been that ultimately we have more to give than we do to take. Um, taking is important, but giving is more important. And I think... Drawing Gadarim is a way of of creating a hecker that that's the case, right? It's a way of expressing the fact that we believe we have a lot to take from this, a lot to learn from the wider culture, but we have more to give. That's why we draw Gadarim on what we take and don't draw Gadarim on what we give. Tell me about your podcast, Good Faith Effort. Oh, yeah. So Good Faith Effort uh, is my is my podcast. You can find it on uh, Apple, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, anywhere else you get your podcasts. It is a podcast about how all the most important conversations in society can be and are illuminated and inspired by the values of the Bible. So every single week we have on a new guest. Sometimes they're thought leaders who are religious, you know, sometimes they're faith leaders rather who are religious. Oftentimes they're people who who have no connection to religion at all or are only tenuously connected to religion. And we talk about how. Uh, the field that they're in, whether it's, you know, a major, you know, a major tech entrepreneur, whether it's a major music producer, whether it's, uh, you know, a major pastor, we always talk about how the Parsha that we're talking about that week and the themes and values of that week's Parsha actually impact uh, the most important conversations for society that they're engaged in. And so that's what we do every single week. I've listened to it and it's really a terrific podcast. I could talk to you all day, Ari, but it is now about an hour and this is a really great conversation. I hope to continue it at some point in the future. Really, really great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It was so fun. My pleasure. We'll do it again. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. For a small monthly donation, you decide how much or how little. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com. <laughs>